So I go to this conference every single year. It's in Atlanta. And this year, because of COVID, I thought that it was going to be totally online. But at the last moment, they decided it was going to be in person. I didn't want to COVID travel. I didn't want to get on an airplane. I didn't want to stay in a hotel. But I really wanted to hear one of the sessions that was going to be at this conference. So you know what the airlines do? They give you this long list of things that they're doing to ensure our safety. And just really kind of built my confidence level. And then the hotel, I always stay in the same hotel. They do a long list of things like boom, 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 boom. We're doing all this just to build your confidence. So I felt, I felt confident. I felt confident enough that I was going to get on a plane and confident enough that I was going to stay in this hotel. So I go down there and again, I'm going there because I really want to hear about this one session. But I want to tell you something that happened and it's around food. When I got there, the conference always starts on Tuesday night with dinner. I get there at lunchtime. I said, you know what? I'm going to go out and get a burrito. At, I was going to get it at a, you know, a very well-known chain restaurant. I'm not going to tell you the name. Okay. You'll understand why in just a moment. So I get this big burrito. I bring it back to the hotel and I'm munching on this burrito and it's, it's awesome. I get almost all the way through and I'm like, something, something doesn't feel right. And I reach in and I pull out and there's like a six, inch long green piece of rope. It must have been hiding in the lettuce bowl of the place that made the burrito. And I, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I told my kids, my kids said, dad, did you go back and tell the place you get burritos for life? But here's the deal. I don't want burritos for life anymore because my confidence level in this place has totally dropped through the floor. Well, I want to tell you why I wanted to go to this conference so much because there was going to be a session a session on the least likely person in the United States of America to go to church. Who's that least likely person? You know who it is? They named this person Drew. Drew is a 22 to 35-year-old male. Drew's number one, number one goal in life is happiness. And he fuels his happiness by his hobbies. He likes friends, he's social, but he's also lonely. Drew loves to travel for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons Drew loves to travel is because it's kind of like an escape for him. He also likes gaming. He does a lot of gaming. The reason he likes to game is because games allow him to redo life. He can start over again, which is, that's, that's kind of cool. Drew likes to go to parties where he wears masks because it allows him to be somebody else. This is who Drew is. Drew likes cats because cats require less commitment than dogs do. This is a little bit about who Drew is. Drew likes to really make sure he's taking care of his appearance. He wants to do well at work. He wants to do well with money because that allows him to kind of fund his travel and his gaming and all those other things that Drew really likes to do. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. Drew grew up in a Christian home of some sort. Whether they went to church all the time, I don't know. But he grew up in a Christian home. But when Drew considers the Bible now, Drew says, you know what? The Bible's all about faith. And faith is the polar opposite of facts. And Drew is about facts. Drew is about evidence. And so when he considers the Bible, he says, you know what? All I see in the Bible and a lot of what I hear from Christians and a lot of what I see going on in the church, I find a lot of green ropes in the Bible. And his confidence is down. Drew says, you know, I want to believe but the Bible is actually standing in my way and it doesn't have the evidence that I need. Well, listen, everybody, I want to thank you because so many of you have sent me these awesome questions. You got to keep doing that. 
You got to keep sending me questions. My email is on the screen, john.sly at trygrace.org. Our Daily Grace, you got to check out Daily Grace. It's a living conversation. You send the questions. They're all anonymous, but I answer the questions. Oh, I do my best job to answer the questions there. And it's this living conversation we have. So so you got to keep doing that. And you got to check out Daily Grace. And you got to download the Grace app, right? So we can keep having this conversation and learn from each other. This is the way it's done in biblical spiritual growth is we learn from each other. We have a discussion. But I want to add one other thing to this, and that is is Zoom Q&As. I'd like to have a couple of Zoom Q&As with maybe 20 or less people in it. You send your questions in beforehand. I try to formulate some type of response, and then we discuss it together. You can have your question answered. You don't have to ask it in front of the camera. I'll just do my best, you know, to answer it. But send me an email if you want to be a part of a Zoom Q&A, please, is super, super important. Now, here we go. We're going to go back to Drew because Drew wants evidence and he thinks that the Bible doesn't offer any. And actually, the reason the Bible was written was for answers and for evidence. Just think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. The reason for what? The reason for your hope. Here's one of the things about Drew. Drew feels hopeless. Feels hopeless. Doesn't necessarily want to tell anybody about his hopelessness, but he's terrified that he feels hopeless and he's looking for hope. And the thing is, is Drew is all about science. Science, the domain of science, isn't equipped to give the answer to hope or the meaning of life or purpose. But Drew needs an answer. And Jesus, the Bible, tells us we should be ready to give an answer and it should be about hope. So always be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You know what, everybody? I always haven't been equipped to give answers. I don't have the answer for everything right now. But I knew that I had to come up with some answers to the big questions that Drew is asking. Everybody, the Bible has the answers to life's most important questions. Actually, the Bible is filled with evidence. And that's one of the things we need to tell Drew. The Bible didn't say, hey, just believe, Drew. Don't ask for facts. Don't ask for evidence. The Bible actually specifically says it has been written so that we have a mountain of facts. I want to read you from John chapter 20, which just emphasizes that point. Jesus performed many other signs. What's a sign, everybody? Sign is evidence. A sign's facts. Sign's something we can say, oh, here you go. Here's something that I can believe in that's factual, that's tangible. It says, Jesus performed many other signs, a lot of evidence in the presence of his disciples, which are recorded in this book. He goes, all kinds of signs, and not all of them are recorded in the book is what John is saying here. They're not all recorded, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's John saying? Clearest purpose of any book in the Bible is this. I'm giving you a lot of evidence. Why? So you can believe. Saying, I'm not going to give you any evidence, but you need to believe anyway. John is saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of evidence so you can believe. So listen, here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to finish off this great, like, no rope meal, right? There's no ropes in this meal. And then we're going to go down to the history room of the Bible, right, of the Museum of the Bible here, and we're going to talk about facts. He didn't say, hey, look, just believe, no evidence, no facts. He said, no, I'm going to give you. And we're standing in a building, in a beautiful building today, which represents a multitude 
a multitude of facts, a mountain of evidence here about why we should believe. It just, just makes sense, right? That's the way it works. Look what Luke says. I love this at the beginning of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, right? These are all signs that the Bible has given us that this is serious evidence. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. What's Luke saying to Theophilus? I'm writing down an orderly account, filled with facts, filled with evidence, so you can be certain of what you believe. Well, look, that doesn't sound a lot like factlessness. That sounds a lot like evidence and proof. This is what the Bible is pointing to, okay? Luke doesn't say to Theophilus, hey, Theophilus, you don't need any evidence. He says, here is a ton of evidence for you, Theophilus. So I want to go through a couple points today. And the first one is this. The Bible is the unique revelation about who God is. If you read Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you're not shocked by what you're reading, if you're not, your jaw's not dropped and you're in awe, then you're not reading in this context. Because if you read Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 and its context, look, I've been reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for a long, long time. And it was like, okay, but when I understood the context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I'm like, every time I read it now, I'm absolutely amazed. Is that you? Are you amazed? Because you probably won't be amazed unless you're reading it in its proper context. You got to take the text in its context. So let's review the facts Let's review the evidence about who is God as revealed to us in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Nobody likes to be taken out of context, right? So here's what we're told. There were many gods. There were many gods in the world. And these gods were filled with hate and violence. You couldn't trust them. There was injustice. They were unloving they had bodies, they had sex, they were unfaithful, they were untrue, they were petty, they were mean-spirited, all of these gods, right? And, and they created human beings, really low view of human beings, out of their own vomit, out of their own spit, human beings to be their slaves. This is the context in which the Bible was written, okay? And then after all of that, after this incredibly low view of human beings and these gods being mean-spirited, along comes the Bible and tells an entirely different story. Not a little different, like a lot different. And we're introduced to God, the one God of the Bible, not the many gods. And he is loving and he's trustworthy and he's true and he's kind. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have sex. God doesn't do all these mean-spirited things. Actually, he creates in the Bible, he creates human beings out of love and he's faithful and true. And instead of human beings being created to be the slaves of the God, actually God says, I want to lovingly provide for you instead of you providing for me. Where did this come from? I was told when I went to seminary that the creation story in the Bible is just like all the other creation stories, but it's not. It's not even close. Where does it come from? And the facts are, as you read the story, 
in the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it is an entirely unique revelation. You know what? You can only come to the conclusion that it must be written by God because there is no other story even close to this story that's listed for us. And now when I read it, I'm in absolute shock. So Drew, Drew's trying to figure out by science. He's trying to answer the question, how do I find happiness? How do I find meaning? How do I find purpose to life? Look, the Bible actually tells us how to find it. It answers life's most important questions for us. The famous scientist, Stephen Hawking, right? He said, what are we going to do? Because we have all kinds of problems in the world and the world's filled with violence. What can you do? He said, we better get off the planet as quickly as possible. We better find our way to Mars or somewhere else. You know why? Because science does. That's not the domain of science. Theology, philosophy, yes. They talk about meaning and purpose. And this word right here, the most unique revelation of God that we have in the history of the world, the most influential book that has ever been written, that's the question it is answering. How do I find meaning? How do I find purpose? How do I find happiness? So if you know any Drews out there, the evidence is this. The Bible is where we find the answers that we are asking the most. So if you were to ask Drew, hey, Drew, do you believe in a God of love? You know what Drew answers? Drew answers, yes. You got to ask Drew then, Drew, where'd you get that idea from? The idea came from the Bible. If anybody in this world believes in a God of love, it is the Bible and only the Bible that introduced that thought to us. It's not an original thought. It came from the Bible because every other God was mean-spirited and hateful. And only the God of the Bible was trustworthy and true and filled of love. So Drew is kind of a part of his own evidence because he believes in a God of love. And he believes that because the Bible told him so. Hey, Drew, Drew, do you believe in universal human rights? Drew says, yes. He say, Drew, where'd you get that idea from? Where'd you get that idea from that all people are created equal? That idea was introduced to us by the Bible. These two main important points of the Bible. So Drew is kind of a part of the, his own evidence. All right. Point number two. Real events, real people, figurative language. Real events, real people, figurative language. That's Genesis 1 through 11, so to speak. I've had some really multiple people have asked me this question. Hey, John, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're saying that there's some figurative language in Genesis like 1 through 11, then how am I to know what is figurative and what is not figurative? Like, is the cross and resurrection, is that figurative? You know what? That is a great question. You guys are really smart. Thank you for sending that. So here's what happens. The Bible sends us strong signals. It's kind of like when you go into a library. You go into a library and there's signs. This is the history section. This is the sports section. This is the poetry section. Strong signal, strong sign. I know where I'm getting. So I don't go to the to the sports or poetry section if I want to read about history. The Bible does the exact same thing. Sends a strong signal. Just think about the signals in the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis. They're absolutely amazing. So the sun is created on the fourth day. So you're told the first day, at the end of the first day, there's evening and morning. Second day, there's evening and morning. Third day, there's evening and morning. And then the fourth day, the sun is created... The Bible actually registers evening and morning by the sun. So it's a strong signal. Wait a minute. There's something figurative going on here. What's it trying to tell me? That's the first thing. How about this one? We're told that God rests on the seventh day. Well, I don't know many people that think that God has limited energy. 
It's sending us a straw. I don't think that God has limited energy. I think God has unlimited energy and God is unlimited in every way. So it's sending us a strong signal. What about this one? Genesis chapter one is a creation story. Genesis chapter two is a creation story. And many people who are critics of the Bible say, well, see there, there's two creation stories. And the two creation stories, I know you've probably read this before. For those of you who are into the Bible, I know we've got a bunch of people that have never read the Bible before or never gone to church. I know we have a bunch of Druze watching today. That's all right. Here, here's the thing. Genesis 1 and 2 totally contradict each other. Genesis chapter 1, you got all these things created and plants and animals and blah, 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 blah. And then the last thing created at the end of chapter 1 is Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2, first thing that's created, Adam. And then plants and animals and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, Eve is created. So they contradict each other. Well, what, what's with the two creation accounts? That's normal in ancient Near East. It would be totally normal to have multiple creation accounts to tell us something about about the creator, which is what it's really all about. So we have to understand its context. We have to understand it's speaking in figurative language. Totally normal. Another strong signal. How about this one? God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathes into him life. We don't believe God has lungs. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and in truth. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have lungs. Figurative language. What about this? God is walking around the garden. Genesis chapter 3. God doesn't have lungs. God doesn't have legs. It's figurative language. Strong signal. It's telling us now. We're like, oh, I get it. The Bible is absolutely amazing. But we got to follow the genre. And the Bible gives us clear signals of the genre. Okay, how about this? God says to Cain, Abel's blood, who you murdered, is crying out to me from the ground. I've never heard blood cry. I spilled some blood before, my own, and it's never cried out to me. I've cried, but the blood hasn't cried, right? It's figurative language. So the Bible sends us strong signals of what we can believe in. Now, let's go to the cross and resurrection, because many of you have asked about that. Wait a minute, what do we do? Zero figurative language. When the Bible talks about the cross and the resurrection, zero is the number. It doesn't give us. It's stone cold facts, orderly account, boom, boom, boom. Genesis 1 through 11, theological history, lots of figurative language, cross and resurrection, nope, recorded history, stone cold facts about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible sends us really clear signals. Now, here's the thing for some people, they've said to me, John, man, this, you know, and the figurative and going deep and Greek and Hebrew and all this stuff. I mean, I just, I don't know what to believe when I read the Bible. Listen, I want you to know this. Some people hear this, like me. There's been a lot of people who've said this to me. They say, my gosh, John, understanding the text in its context, understanding what the Bible is doing, my faith and confidence in the Bible is absolutely sore. And I got to let you know, that's where I am. I am so excited. Like through this whole pandemic, the one thing that's got me more excited than anything else is actually studying the Bible because my faith and confidence in the Bible has just gone through the roof as I read the text and its context. But I understand because I know many of you and many of you are my friends. You're like, wait a minute. How can you? We're going to get into unpacking some of these things next week about how we can understand the text in its context, how you can figure it out without being a Greek or a Hebrew scholar. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to figure some of those things out. All right. Third point, the Bible's main mission is really hard to miss. The Bible's main mission is really, you have to work really, really, really hard to miss the main point 
that the Bible is communicating to us. God is a God of love. He's a God of justice. He creates everybody equal. He redeems. He restores. He renews. He's trustworthy and true. I want you to think about this. Drew. Drew, who is the least likely person in the United States of America to go to church. Drew, who says the Bible is filled with green ropes. Drew, who says, I want to believe what the Bible totally stands in the way, right? He doesn't want to believe. He won't go. He won't read the Bible. Nothing. But somehow, Drew has figured out two main points of the Bible. Two of the most foundational points of the Bible. God is love and everybody's created equal. You know what? The main point of the Bible is really hard to miss. It is clear. And you know what? If all of us just lived by what is revealed to us by God in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, this world would be a much different and better place. Fact. Evidence. It is totally clear. That's what it's saying. And somehow, someway, Drew, who doesn't trust the Bible, somehow did not miss one of the two of the most important points in the entire Bible. Now, so when Drew asks, is there evidence? We can go to Drew and we can say there is actually, there's actually a mountain of evidence. John chapter 20, all these things written so that we would believe all these proofs given so that we would believe Luke chapter one, which I already said. Okay. But how about, I love Romans 15.4. This is what Romans 15.4 says this. For everything was written, right? Everything written in the Bible. Everything written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. We might have hope. Drew is looking for hope and hope is found right here. Science, it's not the domain of science to give hope. It is the domain of scripture to give hope. And if I'm not communicating with hope to Drew, then I don't understand the scriptures. If I'm not filled with hope as I read the scriptures, then I don't understand the scriptures. I have taken the text out of its context. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to go full into science. And we're going to see that there is zero contradiction between science and the Bible. Next week, we're going to explore more how I can understand the genre of scripture and what some of the leading New Testament scholars, why in the world would they say they don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God? The answer might be surprising to you, but I want to end today with a mountain of evidence, okay? Like a whole mountain. You want evidence? Drew wants evidence? You want to know if you can be certain of your faith? I want to give you an absolute mountain of evidence as we conclude today. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he says, he's talking all about the resurrection of Christ. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. According to what scriptures? Like what scriptures between Genesis and Revelation, Genesis and Malachi talk about Jesus Christ being raised on the third day. There's only one. And Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 12. This is what he says. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see some evidence from you. And then Jesus says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. So Jesus says, look, the only sign I'm going to give you is the evidence of Jonah. Now, that's just a whole big problem. Jonah, big fish, three days in the belly. How do you live for three days in the belly of fish? What's up with that? I mean, how am I supposed to feel excited about that one sign that Jesus says, I'm going to give you to believe? How does that translate to a mountain of evidence? Well, let's let's review, and then I want to read you a couple words from Jonah, and we're going to end this thing out. All right, here we go. So Jonah... 
Jonah, unlike all the other prophets, so like when God speaks to the prophets, they're supposed to respond. But Jonah, when God speaks to him, he runs the exact other way. So the genre here is a little bit of satire, which is famous in the ancient Near East. So it's satire. All the other prophets believe and they go and Jonah hears and he runs the exact opposite way. What's Jonah about? Jonah's all about, you know, I hate the Ninevites and they were really cruel to the Israelites, so he should hate them. And Jonah was like, I want it to be about nationalism. I want it to be about my people. And God says, I love all people. I'm about globalism. I created everybody in my image. So some really cool things we learned first off. So Jonah goes the wrong way, gets on a ship, big storm. Sailors throw him into the sea. Big fish swallows him up. And then Jonah prays this prayer in Jonah chapter 2. I want to read it to you. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You brought up my life from the pit. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out of the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, arise, go to Nineveh. I just want to give you a quick quote and then I'm going to say this story and we're going to be done. Tremper Longman, who's considered one of the leading Old Testament scholars, Hebrew Bible scholars in the world, says this. The Bible is inerrant, but our interpretation is not. I spent a, mo- a lot of my life, people asking me, well, did you believe this? Do you believe this about this fish? And can, can a man survive three days in the belly of a fish? Didn't that seem kind of stupid? I remember somebody asked me that question 20 years ago. I'm like, Jesus seemed to believe it because he said this. And the person looked at me. You've seen that look before. Okay, you know, that like, you're the stupidest person I've ever met in my life. So what's the deal? In the ancient Near East, they weren't discussing the fish and can you live for three days. That wasn't the point of the story. And, it, and, and we missed the power of God's word because we're discussing something out of context. We need to go into context and realize our hermeneutic, our interpretation is really, really important. So what's really going on here? People say, can Jonah survive three days in the belly of a fish? I don't know because he didn't. He died. I mean, that's what it says. When it says he went to Sheol, in context, in Hebrew, Sheol is the place of the dead. It's Hades. Jonah is dead. When he says that God, you brought me out of the pit, pit in Hebrew, in context, is the place of the dead. He's dead as a doornail. I don't know if somebody can survive three days in a fish. I just know that Jonah didn't survive three days in a fish. That that man's dead. There's no two ways about it. And then God speaks to the fish. He vomits him up. And then God says, arise. That's a resurrection term. So this is why Jesus is saying it's the sign of Jonah. Now, what does Jonah then do? He goes to this city of Nineveh. Nineveh is a bunch of Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. They had no care, no concern whatsoever for the Israel God, for the God of the Bible. No care. Didn't want anything to do with the Israel God. And all of a sudden, Jonah goes after he's been resurrected. He goes into the city and everybody turns to God. When I say everybody, I mean everybody, even animals, the king, the people, and the animals, even the animals turn to God. It's like a wholesale flood to become followers of the God of the Bible, who they had zero interest in before. Zero interest. Now let's come back to Jesus. And I'm going to give you a mountain of evidence. Actually, I want to give you more than 2 billion pieces of tangible evidence for you to chew on. Okay, here we go. Not like the green rope I talked about earlier. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to die, be in the ground, in the earth for three days, and I'm going to arise. And just like Jonah, there is going to be a flood of people who believe in the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, listen, everybody, nobody argues this because both Jonah and the words that Jesus Christ spoke, everybody know it's factual evidence. 
that Jesus Christ spoke those words before Gentiles began to flood into the church of Jesus Christ and become his followers. And today, more than 2 billion Gentiles believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus spoke those words long before the flood took place. Long before Gentile after Gentile after Gentile began to become followers of Christ. Today, today, Africa, South America, and China are exploding with people following Jesus Christ. It's totally what Jonah says. It's totally what Jesus says. That's the truth of it. So there's more than 2 billion pieces of evidence that you can hang your hat on and you can, without reservation and hesitation, trust and fully center your life on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's filled with evidence and it is true and trustworthy. Help us, Lord, to embrace it fully and to center our lives on you. In Christ's name, amen.